Please open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we're considering the theme of the cross and sanctification, and we've just sung of what Christ has done for us in His perfect work of redemption, and the fact that our response is to give our all to the Lord, to live for Christ with all that we have and with all that we are, with our entire being. And it is the frustration of a believer to recognize how often the flesh gets in the way of serving our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How often sin inhibits us from loving God and from trusting God with all that we are. And we find in Scripture that those who come to Christ, those who are transformed, those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ, once we come to Christ, once our position in Christ is settled, and one way to think about that is the statement that uh, Paul makes in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, you as a believer, you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's your permanent position is with Christ. And yet at the same time as we prepare to be with Christ, as our position, our spiritual position, united with Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenly places as we await for the grand reality of being in the very presence of Christ, there's a process of sanctification that takes place in our lives as we learn to be like Christ in the way that we think and our affections and the things that we love were weaned away from the world, were weaned off of, of the things that are temporal and that so easily cause us to stumble in this world and take our focus off of what is eternal. And what we find in the Gospels as the Gospels are presenting Christ as the Son of God, that's the theme of Mark. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark is establishing Jesus' identity as the King of kings and the Lord of lords who came to redeem his people from their sin. And in the midst of establishing the identity of Christ and recording the life of Christ, the Gospels also give us a paradigm of discipleship. As our Lord disciples his disciples, those that he called to follow him, those that in a unique sense would be used to start the church, and yet in a sense that we all can understand and sympathize with, and is filled out even for us in the rest of the New Testament, men who as they followed Christ, their sinfulness was revealed, their need for growth was revealed, and often those points of growth took place as Jesus confronted them with the cross, with the teaching of the cross. And in Mark, there are three points where Jesus begins to teach his disciples about the cross at the end of chapter 8, and then where we are here in chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, and then also in chapter 10. And in each case, when the disciples 
hear the teaching of the cross, their response is very fleshly. They rebuke the Lord or they they compare themselves with themselves and criticize one another or they seek glory for themselves. And so often that is the case when believers are confronted with the cross, when we when we're confronted with the reality of what Christ did and all that he was and is and his humility, we, we, are, we find ourselves so far short and we find that there is so much sin still residing within us. And yet that is part of God's plan of changing us and of transforming us to confront us with the reality, the glory of who Christ is, both in his humility and his preeminence, and to see ourselves and our desperation for our constant need to, as Andrew read for us this morning, to lay aside sin. And, And if you want a very simple Uh, explanation of what sanctification is, it is the constant laying aside of sin as we prepare to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And that might come as a shock because there are so many aberrant ways that people view sanctification as, you know, some kind of feeling-oriented process where You know, you just come and give it up all to God. And, you know, something happens, some mystical, undefined thing happens where now you're unable to sin anymore. That's false teaching. It's not biblical. Sanctification is a progression toward Christ-likeness that will not end until you see Christ. It continues all the way till you finish your course on this, in this earth, and it is a progressive laying aside of sin. And, and you know, one of, the, one of the paradoxes of sanctification is that as we grow in Christ-likeness, we, we actually also grow in our understanding of how sinful we are. There's a sense that we're more sinful than we thought we were when we even came to Christ initially. And, of course, that makes sense. Christ is light. And and the more you pursue the light, the more you grow in the light, the more you see. But in His grace and His mercy to us, God reveals to us our sin, and He tells us that if we confess our sins... And that's written to Christians in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we continue to pursue Christ by laying aside sin. And what we've seen in this passage, again, the, the whole passage uh, that we're going to look at a part of this morning runs from Mark 9, verse 30 through Mark 9, verse 50. We've already looked at verses 30 through 41, and where Jesus teaches about the cross. And as he does that, the disciples' pride is exposed in their responses. They start to compare themselves among themselves and argue about who's the greatest, keeps them from serving like Christ, who is the servant of all. 
And then they're looking around and criticizing other people who are serving Christ, which also keeps them from serving Christ. And Jesus reminds the disciples as he answers John's concern about the one who is serving Christ. He says in verse 41, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The reality is that as followers of Christ, we belong to Christ like all other followers of Christ. And the reason we belong to Christ is because of God's good favor, of God's purposes, and of the redemption of Christ. Nothing we've done in ourselves. And so what Jesus does, beginning in verse 42, is he turns the conversation from examining others to examining yourself. How am I going to grow in sanctification? Well, I'm not going to grow in sanctification by comparing myself with other people or by criticizing other people who are serving Christ. The only thing that does is puff me up in pride and think that I'm good and fine and I don't need to repent of anything because look at all these other people who are way worse than me. Right? And Jesus corrects that mindset and he turns the conversation from examining others to examining self. So let's pick up in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. That last statement is where Jesus is driving this whole passage, this whole point of instruction. Be at peace with one another. Disciples, you've been, you've been comparing yourself and arguing about who's the greatest. You've been criticizing other people who are serving me. That's not what it looks like to follow me. Be at peace with one another. And so to, to get to that point and and to pursue peace with one another, Jesus redirects the disciples from their comparisons and criticisms to the consideration of their own hearts. The proud words and the critical spirit that was reflected in the passages leading up to this instruction from Christ grow out of self-righteous exaltation because when, when you look good, everyone else looks bad. And dealing with pride, dealing with the root 
cause of those comparisons and those criticisms requires dealing with your own heart according to the truth of what God says is in your heart. That's very important. Dealing with your own heart, not on the basis of what you feel is going on in your heart, but on the basis of what God says is in your heart. You know, that, that reality will quickly, will quickly move a follower of Christ from looking for some kind of subjective peace inside of them when trying to make decisions. There's nothing good inside of me. The last thing I want to do is go on my heart. I need to look at my heart according to what God says is in my heart and deal with my heart accordingly. And Jesus tells us in the sobering statements that he piles up in this passage. For example, if you cause someone to sin, it's better if a millstone were hung on your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Or the repetition of you need to, you need to deal with your, with your life in such a way that removes causes for sin lest, lest you exchange clinging to sin for an eternity in hell. Those serious statements help us recognize that someone who's unconcerned about the spiritual condition of others and willing to be a stumbling block, someone who is unconcerned about the condition of their own heart is in danger of hell. That's the seriousness with which the Lord presents our need to, to consider the, the spiritual well-being of others and the condition of our own heart. Those, on the other hand, who truly care about others also care about their own sin. And their sincere and effective concern and love and care for other people ultimately pursuing peace that grows out of an understanding of the nature of their own heart and an understanding of the mercy and grace of God that is alone responsible for changing them. Paul tells us that the Spirit of God has poured the love of God in our hearts. And those who are filled with the Spirit of God, who have been justified by faith and have peace with God, are then eager to extend that love and concern to other people as they realize it's nothing in me, it's all of what God has done. So we examine ourselves in the light of the Word of God. And we are changed by His grace. True followers of Christ are changed constantly by the power of the Word of God. And it's changed people who no longer instigate division and conflict. It's changed people that exchange suspicion for submission. It's changed people who are not divisive, but are devoted in love. It's changed people who pursue peace as Christ pursued us. 
by willingly laying down their lives, by willingly taking up their cross. Folks, all we're seeing here in this passage is an extension of what Jesus said at the end of chapter 8 is what it looks like to follow him. Pursuing peace then puts you in a position to be a preservative in the dark world. The world doesn't pursue peace. The world knows nothing about sacrifice for the good of others, about laying down your life in love for the good of others as Christ did for us. And so those who pursue Christ, who follow Christ, who grow in sanctification, who pursue peace as Scripture defines it, are those who, yes, are in the world, but they are not of the world. They are those who are being sanctified by the truth, which Jesus says, your word is truth. They pursue peace out of the peace that they have been given with God. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's an objective accomplishment of satiating the wrath of God in Christ, and now we are at peace with God. We've been reconciled to God. And as they pursue peace with one another, peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the establishment of righteousness according to the truth, right? Peace isn't a subjective feeling of whether or not I feel good about something. Peace is coming in line with the word of God and submitting to the word of God and loving others out of my love for God. You could say it in this way, that, that peace is the caboose of obedience. And think about that for a moment. Peace is the caboose of obedience. And far too often in Christian circles, peace is the engine that often drives disobedience. I say peace in quotation marks. I don't have a peace about obedience so I'm not going to. Well, that's not going to end well. No, peace is the caboose of obedience, not the engine of dissatisfaction. So that's an overview of what we're going to look at in this passage this morning, and we have three points for us today as we consider what it looks like to lay aside sin, to recognize the tenderness of other people, and ultimately to pursue peace in a way that honors and glorifies the Lord. And I'm going to give them all three to us so that we can see the flow of the passage. Point number one is that you can cause another believer to sin. And we're going to see that from verse 42. You can cause another believer to sin. Point number two, deal with your own sin to avoid being a stumbling block. And we'll see that from verses 43 through 48. And then the third point is allow God's Word to change you. You can cause another believer to sin, deal with your own sin to avoid becoming a stumbling block, and allow God's Word to change you. The content of this passage is heavy. 
When you think about laying aside your own sin, it's, it's a heavy thing. When you think about what Jesus says it looks like to be a stumbling block to other believers, this, this is heavy material. And it really is a joy to be able to preach it to people, to present it, to teach it to people who love the Lord, who want to grow in Christ-likeness, and it's with that confidence and joy that I bring the word here to you this morning. It really is a joy to open the word to those who love the word and love Christ. Well, let's first look at verse 42, where Jesus, as he now teaches his disciples and begins to deal with their pride, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. You can cause another believer to sin. As the disciples are looking critically at what other people are doing and are, are failing to recognize the fact that all believers belong to Christ and are ultimately accountable to Christ. Jesus intensifies the stakes, heightens the warning by telling the disciples, look, there, there's the potential of being a stumbling block to another believer. That's what these little ones who believe in me, that's what is representing those who are believing in Christ. You can be a stumbling block to them, and if you do that, that is not good. Why? Because it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus as he teaches the disciples, first identifies the honorable position of every believer. The honorable position of every believer, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. How does the Lord value believers? Well, they're little ones, they're precious in his sight. Every believer is precious in the sight of God. Turn over to a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18 is probably best known for, oh, this is the discipline passage, verses 15 and following. But before Jesus gets to that, there's 14 verses of material that warn against being a stumbling block, that call to humility, that call for self-examination. And in verse 10, Jesus says this about those little ones who believe in him. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray? So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And without going into much detail in that passage, just note 
Just note that believers are served by heavenly beings, right? Look at the beginning again. Do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now we have to be careful about not sentimentalizing this and going beyond Scripture. Scripture doesn't tell us much about how that happens. We, we simply know that angels are ministering spirits sent out from the Lord. And they minister in such a way that God is glorified, that Christ is magnified. But the point that Jesus is making is that believers are served by heavenly beings. And not only that, even as he issues the warning, he says, look, you be careful that you don't despise a believer. You don't become a stumbling block because I want you to notice that it's not the will of the Father that that anyone should perish. And so even even if you are inconsiderate, even if you don't understand or just run over the tenderness of, of others, just know that your Father in heaven, it's not his will that they perish and he'll protect them. He'll protect them. Of course, in John chapter 10 and verses 18 through 30, and I won't turn there this morning, but Jesus says, look, those that are mine, no one can pluck them out of my hand and no one can pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus repeats that everyone who comes to Christ, everyone who repents, there is joy in heaven. When we think about those little ones who believe in Christ, the honorable position of every believer, they're served by heavenly beings, they're restored by their heavenly Father, they're protected by the heavenly Father and His Son. And then turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 where Paul is instructing the Corinthians about looking out for one another, about not being a stumbling block for one another in matters of conscience. And we're turning here not to fill out the whole teaching of matters of conscience in this case at this time, but simply to note the statement that Paul makes about other believers and about his commitment to care for the spiritual well-being of other believers. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 11. Instructing and warning the Corinthians, he says this, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And so he goes on and says, Therefore, if food makes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. What Paul points out is that every believer is a person for whom Christ died, a person that has been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so he says, look, even if I can't ever have another ribeye, I don't care because the well-being of my brothers and sisters in Christ is more important than me enjoying a steak. 
Again, I won't turn there. I'm just making the point of the honorable position of every believer and what goes on in the church among believers. In in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul, as he glories in his ministry, says that the the preaching of the gospel and, and the ministry and what's taking place in the church is on display before a whole host of heavenly beings. Heaven is aware of what is happening on earth, of what is happening in the church. And and folks, this this is a point of great encouragement for everyone who names the name of Christ. All who are in Christ, rejoice in the care of your heavenly Father. There are unseen spiritual beings that are ministering to you in whatever way the Father sees fit. He works to restore you. He'll keep you. Christ keeps you. The Father keeps you. You you can't be plucked out of his hand. And the work that's happening in your life as you pursue Christ is displaying the multicolored wisdom of God before heavenly beings, and they're giving glory to God. This is the honorable position of every believer. And so when we think about this warning, sober statement, you can cause another believer to sin. We then come to the second part of Jesus' statement, the horror of becoming a stumbling block. If that's the case, if this is how the Lord looks at those who have believed in him, What does he say? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The horror of becoming a stumbling block. And Jesus, in this imagery that he's using, he's taking one of the means of death that the Jews feared most. The Jews feared the sea, and they considered drowning as a horrible death. In fact, very likely there were some political zealots that had been drowned by the Romans right in that time period, so it would have been a gripping and fresh image on the disciples' minds when he, when he says what he did of the millstone, a millstone which was a, a stone used to grind the grain and so big and heavy that a, a donkey was hitched to it and it would circle the, the mill. It was huge and it was heavy. And if it was around your neck and going down, you weren't getting out. If I can put it in an image that, that maybe might resonate with something we're familiar with, If you were to go down to the Ohio River and stand on the Purple People Bridge on the outside of the railing and add a huge stone that took multiple people to push over the side and attached to that stone was a chain or rope by the stone which was coiled and then came up to your neck and you're standing there looking at the river and people are pushing that stone and it finally leverages over the edge of the bridge and begins to fall and you see the rope quickly uncoiling and the stone falling and it's around your neck and you know that it's inevitable. There's nothing that's going to stop that stone. 
And you're standing there in horror and in fear until it grabs you and pulls you down. And as you're falling, you see the stone for a little bit as it hits the water, the rope following that's attached to you. And you know it's inevitable that you're going to follow that stone. You smack the water You go down in the water. The stone is so heavy, you cannot get out of it. There's horror that you know you're drowning. This is it. You're gone. Jesus says, it would be better. It would be better to experience that kind of horrible, fearful, excruciating death with all the fear around it than to cause another believer to sin. Better, better to die that way. Well, that means we probably need to think a little bit, briefly at least, of what it might look like to cause another believer to sin. And in the context, we're immediately alerted to the fact that as the disciples are arguing with one another, that is a display of pride as they compare themselves with themselves. And as they criticize other believers, that is also a display of pride. Those are the things that Jesus is addressing in that immediate context. And, and as we go through the epistles, we find, we find these things fleshed out more and more. And so I just want to take you briefly to a couple passages that help us see what's going on in our hearts and help us understand what some of these uh, signs are of calling a brother to sin or causing a brother to sin. Turn over to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. What's at the heart of this? What's going on if we would cause our brother to sin? What's the source of such pride? Well, as you know, James 3 deals with the tongue extensively. And as James (laughs) unveils what often is behind our words, the fires of hell, he then moves us to look at wisdom. Who, Who is wise? And he does that with a contrast. He says, there's wisdom from above, but then look at verse 14 where he identifies what's going on in hearts where the tongues are like a flame of fire from hell. Verse 14, he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Now, this is what our heart looks like. This is what our heart defaults to. And James is laying that out. He said, if you're left to yourself, if you're you're leaning on your own understanding... This is what's going to come out. It's going to be divisive. It's going to be full of jealousy and selfish ambition. It's going to create disorder, and it's going to create confusion. And it's going to be a harm to those who 
are around you because it's demonic. It's driven by the doctrine of demons, and the doctrine of demons is all about self. So how does that look? How does it come out? Well, there are three main ways that it comes out. Again, we're just kind of extending this idea if if it's such a horror to become a stumbling block, and it is, what, what are some of the, of the pitfalls? What direction can our heart go that, that is a stumbling block to uh, other believers? Well, these are broad categories. One, one category is legalism. Legalism. I can have a, a legal mind where, where I'm seeking to establish unscriptural, unscriptural ways of living and saying, you know, if you live like this, that's pleasing to God. Let me give you an example of that. Turn to Colossians, back to Colossians. A few pages back in your Bibles. Colossians chapter 2, Paul was very aware of this happening in the Colossian church, this idea of establishing unscriptural ceremonies and practices, things that had already been fulfilled in Christ or that were, that were extra and on top of Christ. And this is what he says in verse 16 to the Colossians as he's seeking to exalt Christ. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up with reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And Paul is dealing with the mindset that, you know, you have, we have to carry out certain Jewish holidays or, you know, we, we have to, what, what does he say? We, we, we have to eat certain foods and, and, and there's just all this regulatory stuff around so-called worship that undermines the authority of Christ, that undermines the perfect work of Christ, and actually creates a sense of, hey, look at all the things I do. See how good I am? I, I can't believe you don't celebrate that Jewish holiday. No, you're putting a facade up that keeps you from dealing with putting to death the flesh and the things of the heart. And it becomes a stumbling block. In fact, Paul warns Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 about people who do this in the church. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
as he's warning Timothy about the times of evil in the last days. People are going to be lovers of self and so on at the beginning of 2 Timothy chapter 3. He goes on and, and says in verse 5 that people like this have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. So avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Johnes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men of corrupted mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. What is he describing? He's describing that even within the body of Christ, there are people that are ensnared by all of these external ways of doing things, and, and, and ultimately they're driven by, by selfishness with an appearance of godliness, with all the trappings of the days and don't touches and all of that, and yet they're leading believers astray in their homes. And he says, they are corrupted and they're disqualified, but the Lord will protect his own. So legalism, legalism is one of the ways that people are ensnared or stumble. On the other side of that, but with the same root cause, is lawlessness or antinomianism. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. Again, we're just we're taking some time to do this because if being a stumbling block is such an awful thing in the eyes of God, and it is because Jesus says it is, then we need to consider broadly what, what the possibilities are so that we can avoid these things and understand the significance of the rest of the passage and what Jesus says. And second, Peter. Peter is warning against false teachers. And if you look at chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, and look at verse 17. If you want to spend some time learning about false teachers, the whole chapter of 2 Peter 2 is worth studying. But we're just going to pick up here in verse 17. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, do what you want. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whoever over, whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become far worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What constitutes stumbling block? Well, on the one hand, legalism. On the other hand, antinomianism. People that say, you know, live it up. I mean, you're saved by grace. Do what you want. That's not going to conquer grace, right? That's the mark of a false teacher. 
who leads people to indulge in sensual desires. Both, whether it's unscriptural, legalistic thinking or full throttle indulgence in the flesh, both neglect the authority of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ and the headship of Christ. And then a third, a third category, we won't turn there, I'm just going to note it from a passage we already read in 1 Corinthians 8. Remember again, Paul said, there are people that are unaware or ignore the tenderness of others, of other believers. And so a third category of being a stumbling block is simply a lack of consideration to where other believers are, a lack of love and a lack of consideration. So legalism, antinomianism, and a lack of consideration all constitute ways that believers can cause other believers to sin. And we need to understand and we need to recognize that, that these are spiritual realities, not, not as a matter of anxiety, but as a matter of sobriety as we think about our interaction and love with other believers. So let's go back now to Mark. You know, I realize in a way you, you, you list those things, legalism, antinomianism, a lack of consideration, and you just open a can of worms and I'm now shutting, <laughs> stuffing the worms back in for now, okay? We'll have to reopen that can of worms at a different time. But, but I wanted us to look at that so that we can, we can see and understand what's at stake and how the New Testament fills this out. And, it, and I think it will give, us, give weight to then what Jesus says. You know, how, if, if that's the case, I mean, really, how can I, how can I even function in a way that doesn't cause another believer to sin? Well, that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. And that's where Jesus goes in his direction in Mark 9 and verse 43 when he then moves the discussion in this way. Look, you can cause another believer to sin, so if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. And the, the, the summary of what Jesus is doing is he's saying this, look, you deal with your own sin to avoid becoming a stumbling block to others. You want to know how to avoid being a legalist? Deal with your own sin. You want to know how to avoid becoming an antinomian? Deal with your own sin. You want to know how to avoid a lack of consideration with other believers? Deal with your own sin. As you deal with your own heart before Christ and realize all that he has done afresh and again and over and over as you continue to lay aside sin, that's when you're able to be a blessing, a blessing to other believers. Well, you come to this passage, and I'm sure somebody has said this before, but you wonder, okay, so, you know, are we going to now change our name from Truth Community Church to the Church of the Maimed? Cut off your hand, cut off your foot, tear out your eye? 
What, what, what's going on? You know, there's a, there's a little bit of nervousness here about this. Well, Jesus is using a, a standard teaching method of the day that doesn't in any way diminish the weight of what he's saying, but emphasizes the significance of the point that he's making. And the you know, million-dollar word for that is hyperbole. He's overstating the fact. Saying, look, if, if there are things in your life that, that cause you to sin, you deal with that. Cut it off. Be as severe as cutting off your hand or cutting off your foot or tearing out your eye. And, and with the three parts that he, that he presents, he's presenting a whole. They represent the whole. In other words, deal with your whole person like this. So, so when we think about what Jesus is saying, when he says deal with your own sin to, be, to avoid being a stumbling block, he's, he's telling us to deal with your sin comprehensively. What you do, where you go, what you view. Right? Look at your whole life. There's, there's nothing out of the scope of the lordship of the Lord Jesus. If you're a follower of Christ, you take up your cross and you deny yourself and you follow him. He is your sovereign. You put aside the world. You acknowledge Christ. You acknowledge his lordship. You acknowledge obedience to him as the primary thing and you do it with every part of your life. This is why Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3 that for the, for the Ephesians that, that Christ may be at home in their heart. And the picture that he uses there is that Christ, Christ will have access to every single part of your life from the inside out. You deal with yourself comprehensively in light of the truth. You know, what, what is sin? Well, I need to know what my Bible says about sin. Sin is deviation from the law of God, but it's not only deviation in deed, it's deviation in affections. It's not loving God with all that I am. Like the hymn writer said, sins of not loving you and sins of not trusting you, infinite, infinite sin. I deal with my sin comprehensively. I look at my whole person and I deal with sin decisively when, when I pray, search me, O oh God. And he does. And he does it through the word. He does it through the preaching of the word. He does it through my own personal time in the word. When, when God, through his word, convicts me of sin, I don't mess around with it. I don't cling to it and say, oh, not that, Lord. Oh, you cut it off. You deal with it decisively. And if that, means, if that means making things right on a horizontal level with people that you've sinned against, you take care of that. If it means confessing where you've told lies, where you've been sneaky, where you've been disobedient, deal with it. Don't, don't harbor sin. Don't embrace your sin. But most importantly, you confess that to God and you repent of it. You turn away. And, and, and the imagery that the Lord uses of cutting off, right, that's an imagery of repentance, that you're not cutting it off and then reattaching it the next day when, you know, your trial's over. No, it's a permanent turning away. 
You deal with your sin comprehensively, you deal with it decisively, and you deal with it immediately. The repetition, it's better to enter life crippled with two hands and to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Jesus is indicating that those who are followers of Christ value him so much that they will immediately deal with their sin as, as an outflow of their love for Christ and that, and that to not deal with your sin in that way, to take sin lightly, calls into question your very profession of whether you're a follower of Christ. Oh, I love you, Christ. I want to follow you. But no, no not, not that. I don't love you that much. Do you love him at all? Repentance is the mark of a true believer. You deal with your sin comprehensively, decisively, and immediately. One commentator puts it in these words that a true, for a true follower of Christ, God is more important even than those things that are indispensable to us. The hand, the foot, and the eye. And again, Jesus says, look, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you about how destructive your sin is. It would be better for you to go through life maimed, having gone through the traumatic experience of severing an indispensable member of your body, than to continue to hold on to your sin, to continue to go about like you have no problem, like you're not sinful, and to compare yourself with others and criticize others. Don't do that. Better to go through life maimed than end up in hell because you never were a follower of me as your pride displays. It's better to experience the traumatic removal of an indispensable part of the body than to suffer eternal agonies in hell. And we say, you know, well, how do I do that? Again, he's obviously, Jesus is obviously not talking about the physical removal because I can, I can cut off both hands and still sin. I can take out both eyes and still sin. I could cut off both legs and still sin. He's using those external images to help us understand what we have to do with the internal reality of sin in our lives. Thomas Brooks in his book, The Unsearchable Riches of Christ, makes this observation as the flood drowned Noah's own friends and servants as well as strangers, so true repentance drowns all darling lust. True repentance is the cutting off of the right hand and the pulling out of the right eye. True repentance is a gift from above, and if the Lord does not give it, man will eternally perish for want of it. He does a phenomenal job of identifying where Jesus is going, what he's telling us to do. You, you ask the Lord to search you, and when he does, and when he exposes sinfulness, you repent. You put aside those darling lusts. 
If your life is not characterized by repentance, by putting away sin, there's no confidence that you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance, folks, repentance is not something that comes naturally. In fact, the natural man cannot do it. 2 Timothy 2 again, in verses 24 through 26, Paul is telling Timothy how to deal with people who are entangled in sin. And he gives him the instruction, and then he says, you deal with them this way, Timothy, so that God may grant them repentance. Repentance is a gift of God, and so when God convicts you by a spirit of sin and turns you to deal with that sin by, by repentance, folks, to not repent, to not repent is to set aside a precious gift of God. And don't think for a moment, don't think for a moment that, that you can put aside sin for a little while and think, you know what, I'll get back to you. No, it's a gift. It's in God's hands. And to minimize a gift is to have no assurance that you'll be given it again. It's to pass the opportunity. And I'm not, I'm not in any way, shape, or form talking about a losing of your salvation. I'm just saying, look, if you bypass the conviction of the Spirit, if you bypass the, the call to repentance, then are you even a Christian? That's what Jesus is saying here. If you're not repenting, you're in danger of the fires of hell. And, and you know, just as a, as a note, <laughs> there's so much in this passage and there's so little time. When you, when you think about what Jesus says, you know, again, the, the imagery is gripping. Taking, you know, taking a meat cleaver or a machete and chopping off your hand or your foot or gouging out your eye. And Jesus says the traumatic experience of that and living the rest of your life without that appendage is better than hell. We can't begin to comprehend the horrors of hell. You know, when, when you have that traumatic event, it's a point of destruction. The, the, the hand comes off, the eye comes out, the foot comes off, and it's off and it's done. You, you recover. You don't have it, but you recover. In first Th or Second Thessalonians 1, Paul describes hell as eternal destruction. Eternal destruction. So instead of destruction of a traumatic event where something happens and then it's done, you know, the building falls and it's just collapsed. No, whatever hell is, it's being equipped by God and judgment of God with the ability to endure constant eternal destruction. And I have no idea even how to explain that. It's the Spirit of God that put those two words together to give us a, a sense of the horror of hell. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The alternative 
The alternative is to be under the wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God forever and forever. Well, how do we know what to repent of? (laughs) Well, in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 3, as as Nehemiah and Ezra started to reestablish the worship of Israel, this is a really interesting verse. It says, the people gathered together and they read the word of God for a quarter of a day. I don't know what time it is, but I know this. I haven't gotten close to a quarter of a day. They read the word and then they confessed their sins for another quarter of the day. Repentance responds to the revelation of the word of God. And that's where Jesus goes then in these last two verses. (laughs) Verses 49 and and 50. Jesus uses some language and pictures that we're not familiar with. And if you look at 10 different commentators, you'll probably get 10 different explanations of what he means. So... J.C. Ryle even says, you know, I don't even know exactly what this means, but I think from the context we can, we can come close to, to understanding what Jesus means when he says this. As, he, as you think about the progression of the passage, you can cause another believer to sin, so deal with your own sin to avoid becoming a stumbling block Jesus says in verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. And he's talking, about, he's talking about the disciples here. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Well, what we know as we look at this passage is that the result of whatever he's saying is that you're able to pursue peace with other believers. We also know that whatever salt is and fire, it's something from outside of us that has a purifying and preserving influence. Be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? He's there in the middle statement if the salt has lost its saltiness, he's talking about the disciples, so he's, he's challenging them. You, you're, called, you're called to be people who have been salted with fire, who've been transformed, and who are in some way a difference to what is around you. And you see that by the last two statements, have salt in yourselves, it's a command, and be at peace with one another. And so the way that I'm going to bring that together without taking you through the 50 other options here today is just is very simply this. Allow God's word to change you. What is it? What is it that sanctifies God's people? What is it that that transforms them so that they can be in harmony with one another. Well, Jesus said it in John, in John 17 when he said, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. And then if you turn over to Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, 
Again, back in Colossians. As Paul is giving instructions for Christ-like living to the disciples, or, or to the, they are disciples, but they're disciples in the church of Colossae. Look at what he says in verse 16, beginning in verse 16. I'm sorry, uh, verse 15 is where I wanted to start. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. All right, so Paul says, let, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, and the outcome of that is going to be that you're thankful. Now in verse 16, he expands the idea. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So do you see what Paul does in verse 15? He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful expand on that, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and what's the outcome? Same as the peace of Christ, you're thankful. So when the peace of Christ is ruling in believers' hearts, and they're at peace with one another, what has happened? Well, the word of Christ is dwelling in them richly. The word of Christ has all access to their hearts and lives. And it transforms them from people who were once self-centered and, and concerned about their own places and wanting to put everyone else down to now people who are compassionate, who are loving, who are no longer grumbling and, and dissatisfied, but who are thankful. The word of Christ has dwelt in them richly, is dwelling in them richly. And in the Old Testament, we're given some images that tell us why this happens. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29, Jeremiah, God says about his word, my word is like a fire and it's like a hammer. It melts the heart hard and it breaks it apart. And in Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11, how shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to your word? With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Allow God's word to change you. And we think about that horrible possibility that we could cause another believer to sin when we start to see and understand the sinfulness of our own heart, what do we do? We turn to the Word of God and allow the Word of God, as the Spirit of God works in us, to change us more and more into the likeness of our dear Savior. And when you are transformed, you become a preservative it's the exact opposite of being corruptive. 
The disciples were being corruptive by their comparisons and by their criticisms. And the the Lord says, understand what's at stake. Deal with your own heart and let the word of Christ change you. Let the word of God change you. It purifies, it preserves, and it brings peace. And there is no possible way, there is no possible way to deal with sin apart from the transforming work of God's word. That means you need to be a student of the word and full circle back to where Jesus began in verse 30. You have to listen to the word. Listen to what Jesus says. The disciples weren't and they missed the cross. Be a student of the word and be humbled by the word of God. You know, this is what I'm going to say (laughs) is something that I do not do well. I'm going to convict myself. The thoughts are already convicting me. How do we take God's word seriously? Well, you know, from week to week as the word of God is preached, the way that we ought to leave after the word of God is preached should not be, uh, let, let me think about that. You know, was, was that, am I really like that? You know, maybe, maybe Don or Nathaniel was overstating that a little bit. No, the way that we let God's word change us is that when the word of God is preached, we say, you know what, that just scratched the surface. There's a whole lot more where that came from in my heart. May God humble me and continue to transform me so that as the outflow of God's transforming grace, I can be at peace with my brothers and sisters as I consistently come to the foot of the cross and deal with my pride and deal with my sin for the glory of God. You can cause another believer to sin. So deal with your sin to avoid being a stumbling block and allow God's word to change you. Dane opened the service today with this scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The title of your message in the bulletin today was Radical Change. Radical change happens when God's word leads you right back to the foot of the cross where Jesus Christ died for you. Lord God, we thank you today for your word. We thank you that you do not leave us to ourselves. Oh, what a horrible, horrible thing that would be to be left to ourselves. But in your grace, you have intervened on our behalf through Christ, through his work. You've redeemed us. You've called us to be followers. May we, may we take up our cross and follow you. Oh, Lord, deliver us. Deliver us from our pride. Deliver us from our stubbornness, from our stiff neck humble us in the presence of our Savior today, we pray. 
We love you. We pray that you would strengthen us for our service in this week. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.